Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Back in the early 90s, when Saturday Night Live was actually good and funny and had actual talent, one of the infrequent sketches was called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. The premise was that he was a severely emotionally damaged person with no professional counseling training, trying to help others with self-esteem, while he was just cratering himself. He would start most shows with, quote, I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. And then at some point, he would emotionally crater, quote, I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to cancel the show. I'm going to die homeless and penniless and 20 pounds overweight, and no one will ever love me. And then at some point, he would turn to a mirror, look deeply into his own eyes, and say, quote, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And isn't that what it's all about, me? Not not you so much, but, but more about me. On today's episode, first we're going to do everything we can to make me happy, and then we're going to tell the government to get their slimy hands off of my rights. And after I end my podcast with my ending bump, then I'll tell you about my progress. Update number four. So, prepare to be used, and then prepare to be empowered, because here I go, and, and I'll let you come too. So I think I'm going to start putting my PayPal email address and my Venmo details down in the notes. Maybe I'll fire up a Patreon account, you know, put that info in the show notes as well. And not for me, you understand. I don't really want you. Well, I don't really need your money. Listen, what I want or need has nothing to do with this. I just want you to be happy. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. You want to be happy, don't you? Uh, Okay, look, I'm going about this all wrong. Let me start at the beginning. Found on LinkedIn.com, headline, 11 Habits of Supremely Happy People. We're not talking happy. We're talking happy supreme, like the difference between a taco and a taco supreme. This is like regular happy, but with diced tomatoes and sour cream added into the mix. You want that, right? Well, as luck would have it, Dr. Travis Bradbury, the, quote, author of the Micro Habits Test and number one best-selling co-author, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, has the answers for us. He has unlocked the magic formula, uncovered the ancient secrets, deciphered the happiness rune stones, as it were. And as we all know... Supreme happiness is really the goal, isn't it? Man just wants and deserves to be happy. Supremely. You deserve a taco, I mean a a happy supreme. Combo, large-sized, obviously. Now, the doc's opening sentence is absolutely correct. Quote, We're always chasing something, be it a promotion, a new car, or a significant other. This leads to the belief that When blank happens, I'll finally be happy. Yeah, I mean, that about sums it up, doesn't it? Humans are constantly chasing happiness. He goes on, quote, While these major events do make us happy at first, research shows this happiness doesn't last. Okay, yeah, absolutely correct. He cites a study that compared the subjective level of happy for the average Joe versus a large lottery prize winner one year after winning the winnings. The overall level of happy between the two groups of people were essentially identical after a year. Now that said, I guess I'd be willing to take part in this little experiment. I've done the average Joe route. I don't want to play the lottery as that's a fool's errand, but if someone could just award me a large sum of money? I could try that next. I'll let you know how happy I am in a year. Anyway, the doc continues, quote, the mistaken notion that major life events dictate your happiness and sadness is so prevalent that psychologists have a name for it, impact bias. The reality is event-biased happiness is fleeting. 
And again, I've got to be in total agreement with the doc here. Now, just a quick rabbit trail. You know I like those. The concept of impact bias. What does that mean exactly? Well, this is part of a larger psychological topic named effective forecasting. Basically, the way I understand this, it's our perceived effect and predicted duration of an event uh, on the emotions of an individual. So you could give someone a short answer to an innocent question. That person may have just chalked it up to you being tired or hangry and moved on with life in a matter of minutes or less. You, however, may reflect on that short answer that you gave them and feel real turmoil, believing that you just eternally, irreparably destroyed that person emotionally. This can be applied to our own emotions as well. What if I get a huge raise at work? Come raise time. What if I don't get a raise at all? What if all these numbers on my ticket hit? What if I just spent a hundred bucks on tickets and I get nothing in return? What I really need is that new car. What I really need is that new spouse. And the list goes on. Take anything that triggers emotions and we have the potential to speculate consciously or subconsciously what kind of impact it will absolutely definitely make on our lives and for how long. Of course, invariably, we're a very poor judge of reality with regard to our emotions, as emotion, by definition, must bypass logic to varying degrees. Back to our article. Up to now, the good doctor and I have been pretty simpatico, but now the final paragraph before the list of habits that you and I need to adopt in order to add metaphorical diced tomatoes and sour cream to our mundane meat, cheese, and lettuce lives. And, and this is where it goes off the rails. Quote, happiness is synthetic. You either create it or you don't. Happiness that lasts is earned through your habits. Supremely happy people have honed habits that maintain their happiness day in, day out. Well, Doc, I'm sorry. I can't go with you there on that one. I mean, I agree, I, I think, that happiness is generally synthetic, but not from a standpoint of we create it or we don't, more from the standpoint that happiness isn't the genuine article. It's not the real thing we're shooting for. It's an imitation, or as my dad likes to say, it's the real genuine artificial imitation. But I'm jumping ahead. Let's see what 11 habits will synthetically create daily maintained happiness for us. Habit number one. Quote, they slow down to appreciate life's little pleasures. I mean, that even sounds happy, doesn't it? I mean, life's little pleasures. <sighs> he makes the point that we are creatures of habit, of routine, which can often make us walk around with blinders. He says, quote, happy people know how important it is to savor the taste of their meal, revel in the amazing conversation they just had, or even just step outside to take a deep breath of fresh air. Habit number two, they exercise. Apparently moving for 10 minutes, quote, releases GABA, G-A-B-A, a neurotransmitter that makes your brain feel soothed and keeps you in control of your impulses. Now, I don't know about GABA. I know about Yo GABA GABA, and those episodes used to get the kid's body moving and seem to make her happy, so probably the same thing. He said that, quote, happy people schedule regular exercise and follow through on it because they know it pays huge dividends for their mood. Number three, they spend money on other people. See, like I said in the opening, I just want you to help yourself here. Venmo details to follow. He cites unnamed research that says people are happier spending money on others rather than on themselves, especially when it's small things that take effort. He gives the example of buying a book for a friend that you know they'd like. Number four, they surround themselves with the right people. To be happy, you should hang around happy people and all be happy together in your happy world of happiness. As for those negative Nellies, well, who cares about them? They suck, right? Easy peasy. Bottom line, don't you dare harsh my mellow man. Uh, number five, they stay positive. Oh, another simple one. He does make an interesting statement here. Quote, bad things happen to everyone, including happy people. Instead of complaining about how things could have been or should have been, happy people reflect on everything they're grateful for. Now, don't worry. 
He doesn't spend any time on that thought. He says that happy people don't focus on the bad. They find solutions to the problem. He also moves into the mystical world of, quote, your pessimistic attitude will speak bad things into your life. <laughs> okay, no, that's, that's not exactly how things work, but okay, whatever. Now, how do you stay positive? Well, it's simple. Quote, force yourself to look at the facts, and you'll see that things are not nearly as bad as they seem. Number six, they get enough sleep. Now, he hits the same thing we've heard a million times. Sleeping lets the brain flush the toxins and repair itself, helps you wake up clear-headed, gives you energy, helps your attention span and memory, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. So, quote, happy people make sleep a priority because it makes them feel great and they know how lousy they feel when they're sleep-deprived. Number seven, they have deep conversations. He says that happy people avoid small talk, gossip, and judging others. Huh. Uh, rather, they speak with others at a deeper level because it feels good, builds an emotional connection, and you can learn. Hashtag happiness. Number eight, they help others. This is a win-win. Helping others makes them happy and you happy. Apparently, when you help others, your brain releases all sorts of natural drugs and makes you euphoric. So that's nice. You want to be careful you don't overcommit to helping others, but studies show that those that help others are happier and apparently more successful. Quote, in a Harvard study, employees who helped others were 10 times more likely to be focused at work and 40% more likely to get a promotion. The same studies showed that people who consistently provided social support were the most likely to be happy during times of high stress. Number nine, they make an effort to be happy. Fake it till you make it, right? I mean, that's what he's basically saying here. Quote, happy people constantly evaluate their moods and make decisions with their happiness in mind. Remember, this is all about you. Your happiness is of the utmost importance, apparently. Number 10, they do things in person. He makes another interesting statement here. Quote, the human brain is wired for in-person interaction. Uh-huh. So rather than text, phone, social media, a happy person will just head across town to talk to someone or whatever. Number 11, they have a growth mindset. This is having an attitude of knowing you can change and better yourself. This helps you handle difficulties when they pop up because you know you're not stuck. You can learn, improve, and grow. Now he sums it all up with this, quote, Happiness can be tough to maintain, but investing in the right habits pays off. Adopting even a few of the habits from this list will make a big difference in your mood. Okay, so at a surface level, the list is fine. It's what I would call a mechanically sound, technically accurate list. But did you catch what I believe is the largest problem with this list? I mean, just in general? In theory, if you adopt these habits... What will you be? Happy or happier. And why do you want this? Well, so that you're happy or, or happier. So who is this list about? Well, it's you. This list is all about you. You spend money on others. You hang out with certain people. You engage in deep conversation with others. You help others. You drive across town to talk to people which all sounds like you're a burgeoning, selfless philanthropist, but the reality is you're doing all of these things for others, for you. Your generosity has nothing to do with anyone but you. This list, although technically accurate, is a very self-centered list. You're using others as a means to your happiness, shunning those that will kill your happy buzz. Also, you can be happy. Now, that said, let's back up a bit and start over, but let's shift our focus, shall we? Let's start here. Happiness is an emotion. Emotions are fickle. They're unreliable. They're untrustworthy, and they're fleeting. Personally, I gave up my emotions years ago. Then I became an engineer. Let's look at the list again. If you do all these things and then one day fail in one area, spend the day with a Debbie Downer, Allow circumstances to make you unhappy rather than snatching control of that emotion and banishing it to the deepest level of hell. Well, if you fail here, happiness gone. Poof. Fickle. Unreliable. 
As created beings, and Christians should know this, happiness is great, and it should be enjoyed when possible, but it doesn't hold a candle next to true joy. Joy is a deep, enduring, reliable sense of peace and calm, and a kind of happiness even when nothing on your happiness habits checklist has worked out. Joy is what we are to strive for, joy in the midst of sadness. As Psalm 35, 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Why? Because you did your list? No, because joy is something that endures the ever-changing emotions of man. David said, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. David's joy appears to have been rooted in someone else, that someone else being God. He lamented elsewhere in Psalms, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of God's salvation, a God that cares about his creation, that made a way of rescue, that holds all molecules of creation in his hand. In fact, a form of the word joy is used 208 times in the English Standard Version of the Bible. In contrast, and and yes, I realize this is looking at a very macro level, but in contrast, versions of the word happy are used 15 times. I mean, that should tell us something, right? So, as I actually have no technical problem with the list this doctor has given us, I do, in fact, have a problem with his reasoning why you should do these things to be happy. The only reason you should do these things to be happy is literally so you can be happy. You are the focus and your emotions are of the utmost importance. I think we can and should and do have a deeper why with regard to following this list. I further believe that focusing on this deeper why will be much more beneficial and on a much deeper level than anything we were presented with thus far. And we're also going to address one glaring omission that I found not in his list. So let's start this list over, shall we? Number one, they slow down to appreciate life's little pleasures. What if we change this to something like, they take time to recognize the wondrous creation of God, the beauty all around them, the blessings in this life, and they give God all the glory for the great things he hath done. See, this world is amazingly designed, and even in its sin-cursed state, it's just awe-inspiring. Putting ourselves in the place of a minuscule human, humbling ourselves, helps us experience the true joy of being that tiny, insignificant being that an all-powerful, sovereign God thought enough of to design and create this planet for our survival and our enjoyment. Focusing on the blessings, great and small, in this world can bring true joy. Number two, they exercise. Absolutely, but why? Do we do it just to do it? I mean, some people do, people that are sick in the head, but the rest of us, we need more of a why. I'll be honest. Exercise, you'll feel great afterwards. <laughs> okay, no, never happened. Not one time. I feel terrible. Telling me to exercise to improve my happiness, not enough of an incentive. Shut up and go away. Exercise and eat right or your life will be cut short. Yeah, okay, maybe so, but you know... It's been a good run full of delicious snacky treats. <laughs> no, see, I need to have a higher purpose, a bigger reason. A lot of people point to the deadly sin of gluttony. Okay, that's fine. We're getting warmer. How about this? Although I've let my weight personally cycle up and down through the years, going up to a point where a lot of people would actually be okay with and not see a problem, but to me, it's out of control. The biggest incentive for me beyond being able to sleep on my back and breathe at the same time is to be alive and productively so for my child and my family. I also feel a little guilt, I'll admit that. How do I teach people in my Sunday night class? How do I witness to others when I clearly lack self-control, right? 2 Timothy 1.7, one of my favorite verses says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. How do I tell others about God, about repenting for sin, when I clearly have no control over the cravings and temptations that I encounter on a daily basis? Exercising just to be happy or look better eh, may temporarily work, but to exercise knowing you're doing it for a higher purpose, that brings joy, even when you must exercise and you must diet because you stupidly let yourself slack with your self-control. You know you're doing this for others for a kingdom purpose. Number three, they spend money on other people. Well, sin has marred this trait, but we are a race of givers. 
As a child, sure, we're thinking about what we want for Christmas, but even then, kids still do love to give. I still have a rock, a simple squarish rock that my kid gave me when she was very little playing on the playground. She brought it over to me and said she got it for me. (laughs) It's in the garage on top of my whiteboard. I know exactly where it is. As we age and mature, for nearly everyone, there comes a point where it's as exciting, if not more so, to watch someone else open their gift from you. Sure, there's a tinge of pride there. You know, look what I got you. But I'll make a broad generalized statement. Most people enjoy making others happy. Now, extend that out, and this really encompasses habit number eight as well. That's they help others, right? What about giving to the church? I'm a, uh, there's no such thing as a tithe in the New Testament guy, but I'm also a, you give back to God what you're led to give from the heart with a pure heart guy. Giving to the church, giving to missions, giving to charities, giving of your time and your talent and your money, even your free time dedicated to pray for these groups, knowing that your resources are not only being used to bring happiness to others, which is fine, but also to bring others the gospel. What joy to be part of God's plan. Ray Boltz wrote and sang a song back in 1988 entitled, Thank You. It was a story of a dream that he went to heaven, and as he was walking with someone he had known on earth, reunited in heaven now, people started to come up to his friend, telling this person how the actions that he or she had taken on earth had contributed to them being in heaven now. One lyric says, Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave... And that's why I'm here today. It's, it's not all about money, but rather than happiness by feeling good about yourself for buying a friend something, which again is fine to do with the correct motivation, what about the joy of knowing you're doing your part, whatever part that is, in God's plan for the advancement of his kingdom and the salvation of lost souls? It brings us joy to act in the manner that our creator made us. He gave everything for us. We are created as givers. Number four, they surround themselves with the right people. Well, okay, let's be careful on this one, shall we? This one literally is a purely selfish statement. Who did Jesus surround himself with? We've heard it a thousand times, right? Basically, the outcast, the bottom rung of society, the unclean, the hated. He is our example. At the same time, we're in the world, but we are not of the world, right? The Great Commission tells us to go and tell, or as we're going, to tell others the gospel. It doesn't distinguish to who or whom. Our calling in this world isn't to keep our hands clean, to shun those different from us as the Christian, to lock ourselves inside the church away from the scary unregenerates out there. We're not all called to be part of prison ministry or witness to the women working at the strip club or start an inner city mission or fill in your own blank of the world's, quote, undesirables. But some of us are called to do those things. And we're all called to tell anyone about Christ to offer help, to shine our light in the world. And we're not only designed to do this, we're created to do this. We can shut out the unhappy and the unclean for the sake of our emotional state, or we can experience the true joy of helping someone, of telling someone the world looked down upon, or someone in the depths of despair about the love of Christ, about a better way, about the only way that leads to life. Following our nature rather than our emotions, well, that can bring joy. Number five, they stay positive. Okay, why? This is, in the Christian world, akin to works righteousness. Why are you so happy? Oh, because I'm supposed to be happy. I believe in being an optimist, but a realist. Sometimes this world sucks. You know, sometimes bad things happen. The question is, when tragedy strikes, what do you do? Do you force yourself to be happy? Do you allow yourself to grieve? Do you run to God or run away from God? Do you rely on God knowing he's in control or not? Staying positive is an impossible goal, at least the way this doctor defines it. And the fact that this is literally impossible means you're going to fail at it almost every time. And what happens when you fail? Nothing. (laughs) Just stay positive. (laughs) No, 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 no. This isn't something we can just do all the time. I've said a few times that I have no idea how anyone made it through the COVID era without a faith and a higher power in a sovereign God. Even with that knowledge, I'll admit, I had periods that got kind of tough for me. One of the reasons I'm working off some extra tonnage right now, in fact. 
But through it all, knowing I'm a child of God, knowing he's in control, that's what kept me from losing my joy, losing my mind, losing my hope, even when there were many days that I was not happy at all. Number six, they get enough sleep. This is one I get told I don't do right by a lot of people, but I maintain that the same science that tells us that eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are good, yolks are bad, is the same science that says you need eight hours of sleep a night. Now, I truly believe that everyone is different. Your body will let you know when you need a little extra. That said, sleep or the concept of rest. Why do we need rest? Why do we rest at all? Well, because we're designed this way. Now, I agree that not enough sleep will affect your mood, but change your reason why to get enough sleep. Rather than for your own happiness, how about so you're not as touchy with your family? How about so you can give your best effort at whatever your job is, whether it's taking care of the kids or cleaning the house and running errands or running that piece of equipment or tapping away on the computer? How about so you can stay awake when trying to read your Bible or do your devotions or to pray? Resting so as to be happy, it's a shallow, vapid reason. Rest with a higher purpose in mind. Rest because God gave us the example that we are to take time to rest. Number seven, they have deep conversations. So the good doctor said to stay away from small talk, gossip, and judging. Okay, well, small talk, I mean, if that's all you do, well, I mean, I think we're called to do more than that with these brains. I mean, God gave us a spectacular brain. If all we're doing is discussing what happened on TV the night before, eh, we might be doing a little bit of a disservice to our design and purpose. Gossip? Yeah, well, yeah, we shouldn't gossip. That's biblical. Stay away from that. As for judging, yeah, it depends on what he's talking about. Part of that could be gossip, but to discuss with someone else, say, how to speak to an individual that you're pretty sure isn't saved? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. We make judgment calls every day all day long, and we must judge situations and people. To not do that removes the entire reasoning behind witnessing and evangelizing. But to his point, have deep conversations to bring yourself happiness. I'd argue that meditating on the scriptures, learning about our world, discussing deep matters with others, creating those interpersonal relationships, those are some of the joys that God has granted us. So again, use that big old brain that God gave you. Number eight, they help others. We spoke about this in habit number three. No point in rehashing this one. Number nine, they make an effort to be happy. Well, this is basically the same as number five, which was they stay positive. I don't see a point in rehashing this one either. Number 10, they do things in person. Again, rather than saying we do things in person in order to make ourselves happy, what about we fellowship with others? Because once again, that's part of our very design. And that can actually bring joy to all involved. We are made to forge personal relationships with others, whether this is a spouse or family or friends. Even introverts like me value fellowship, just not as much as other people do. Once again, when we go with God's design, that by nature will bring joy. When we have interpersonal relationships and fellowship with friends and family, that will bring joy by following our design, and by fellowshipping with others, unless we're just doing something very, very wrong here, that will bring joy to them as well. And number 11, they have a growth mindset. I guess I'd say sanctification, right? Think about it. For Christians prior to salvation, we were dead, spiritually dead. So when looking at the potential for growth out of a spiritual death, nowhere to go but up, right? I mean, we're never stuck. We're never without hope. We're never without help, and we're never without the knowledge that no matter what trials come our way, God is sovereign. No, the idea that God won't give us more than we can handle is not biblical. God will absolutely give us more than we can handle, which is what helps to force our reliance on Him. Now, we will never be tempted beyond what we're able to deal with, not without an escape. That's what we're told. But the idea that we'll be able to handle everything life throws at us is foolishness. There are times in the lives of everyone where we just collapse before God, and that's when we really totally rely on his strength to go on. When we understand that God is our rock, that he is forever faithful, that we're never alone and that we're never outside of God's plan, that will bring about true inner joy even in the hard times. See, if we follow the doctor's advice, our happiness can be artificially propped up for a time. Eventually, all the tips and tricks and worldly advice will fail, mark my words, and happiness will crater into despair. Further, I suggest that by forcing happiness, 
when things do fall apart and your happiness fails you, you don't just experience sadness, you drop into the pits of depression deeper than if you weren't trying to be so happy all the time. Because now, not only are you dealing with adversity, but you've also failed at maintaining the all-important happiness that you've worked so hard to manifest that you've convinced yourself you must possess. I'm not saying that I have all the answers here. I mean, most, but not all. I mean, surely not all. And I'm not saying that I've got each of the 11 points just right. But what I know I have right is that we must look at life from a higher perspective, view life with a higher purpose, and admit that God is a higher power and has a grander plan than anything we could come up with. Even in the worst of times, and honestly, this terrifies me to say this out loud, as someday I may be called on to live this out. But even in the worst of times, no plan we could come up with could be better than the perfect plan of God. You can't make perfect better. Which brings us to the glaring omission. Even as I've massaged and manipulated the 11 points originally stated in this article, the reality is there is only one reason for joy. Psalm 32.11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 33.1 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Psalm 35.27 says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. It doesn't matter what we do. We can try the world's tricks to be happy. We can follow our created nature to bring a deeper sense of joy and peace. But true lasting joy only comes from one place, God. If we don't have a personal salvific relationship with our God, if we have not had the righteousness of Jesus given to us through salvation, we can never be truly joyful. Our joy can only truly be found in the Lord. We can only find true joy in his righteousness. If we are walking this earth unsaved, unregenerate, dead in our sins, at enmity with God, no amount of 11-point lists to happiness or joy will ever bring true peace, true hope, true love, true joy. But once our eyes have been opened, our hearts regenerated by God, once we are God's child, true peace and hope and love and joy, well, those are ours for the taking. This doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean adversity won't come. It doesn't mean we'll always be happy. But it means that what we have, the the true peace, hope, love, and joy, well, nothing can take it away because it's eternal. It's not emotion. It's now a fact of who we are. And as no man can snatch us out of the hand of God, no man, no circumstance can take those away from us. I know judges are not allowed to give out cruel or unusual punishment. Cruel, of course, but unusual (laughs) I mean, who's to say? I'm sure some judges have bumped up against the line on that one. For your punishment, I want you to um, place a slice of bologna upon your face. <laughs> Cut out the eye holes. I want you to put on some burlap shoes. Go to the local mall and begin yodeling. Jackson, your honor, a bit unusual, don't you think? All right, 10 days in jail. <laughs> And that was, in my opinion, one of the funniest comedians of the last, I don't know what, two decades? Brian Regan. That clip came specifically from his Comedy Central Presents special in 2008 called The Epitome of Hyperbole, or as he says it, The Epitome of Hyperbole. I mean, we're talking wheezing and coughing the rest of the night funny. You really need to look up the entire show. It's fantastic. And welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 26, our eighth part regarding the amendments to the Constitution. As this is our eighth part, clearly and obviously, we're starting this segment with the Eighth Amendment, which you might have been able to guess from the introduction has to do with restrictions about cruel and unusual punishment. So let's go ahead and read the amendment first, and then we'll flesh it out. Quote, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Ah, okay, great, short and sweet, right? And this rounds out the amendments that were related to crime and punishment, which encompasses the Fourth through the Eighth Amendments. So as I've mentioned previously, regardless of the fact that someone has committed a crime, that person has the right to be treated justly and humanely. Now to me... If something unfortunate happens during the commission of a crime or while being arrested for the crime, unintentional, not willful, 
Well, that's really on the criminal. They shouldn't have been there doing that in the first place. Case in point, I'd suggest you look into the facts and background of George Floyd, who has murals and statues erected to him in the form of some sort of pseudo-worship, and also look into more recently Tyree Nichols, who, because he wasn't a criminal, because this was all black on black, this will be memory hold by the media and politicians on the left as fast as possible. Floyd had committed a crime. He was high, he was having trouble breathing, at least he said so, while he was sitting in the back of the cruiser, and he was non-compliant. Nichols was the victim of a murder. Anyway, my point in this, and I struggled not to elaborate on both situations, you can look them up yourself, regardless of if you're just a nobody walking down the street or someone wrongly accused of something or a person committing a crime, you have the right to be treated like a human. Now, some of your personal choices in the specific scenario may dictate the outcome, but that's on you. This amendment goes directly to that point that you don't lose your right to humanity because you've been convicted of a crime. You may lose your rights, your freedoms, you may even possibly lose your life, but even that is to be done humanely. Now, I don't typically work my way down through the Wikipedia entries for these amendments, but this one did catch my eye, and the likely origin is actually pretty interesting. So this one likely stems back to a very similar provision of the English Bill of Rights of 1689. That provision was likely inspired by the Titus Oates case. Titus Oates apparently lied about a number of different people as to their criminality. He witnessed in front of a judge, whatever, and it led to the executions of many people. Well, when he was found out, he was tried for multiple acts of perjury and was easily convicted. His sentence was imprisonment for life. In addition, he was to be, quote, whipped through the streets of London five days a year for the remainder of his life. So once a year, he was literally removed from prison, had a hat put on his head with his crime written on it. He was put into the pillory at the gate of Westminster Hall on the first day where people could throw eggs at him for the entire day. The next day, he was put in the pillory in London for the same thing. Day three involved stripping him down, tying him to a cart, and while the cart went from Aldgate to Newgate in London, which appears to be about 11 miles, he was whipped. The next day, he was again tied to the same cart and whipped from Newgate to Tyburn, which appears to be another 12 miles. Now, I'm not entirely sure what was done on the fifth day. It doesn't really matter, because the judge considered him to be a shame to humanity. He collected together punishments and penalties of the day and just kind of mashed them all together to try to bring the most pain and shame and disgrace that he could. Apparently, they didn't just give him the death penalty because they didn't want to deter witnesses from testifying in the future. You know, afraid that if they were wrong, even if their testimony was sincere, that they would be abused or they killed this guy, that they would be killed themselves. So, language similar to the Eighth Amendment was put into the English Bill of Rights. Now, nearly 100 years later, this same language found its way into the Virginia Declaration of Rights. That was in 1776, and then not too much later, in 1791, it was adopted as an amendment to the Constitution. George Mason and Patrick Henry were both big proponents of this being adopted into the Constitution, as they were afraid that although states may adopt the language, the Congress could actually go rogue if there weren't constraints in the law of the land. Henry said, quote, What has distinguished our ancestors? That they would not admit of tortures or cruel and barbarous punishment. But Congress may introduce the practice of the civil law in preference to that of the common law. They may introduce the practice of France, Spain, and Germany. I mean, what kind of monster wouldn't trust their government to do the right thing? (laughs) Am I right? So you may ask what would be excessive bail or excessive fines or what constitutes cruel or unusual punishment. Well, go on. I said you may ask it. Fine. Anyway, these aspects have been slightly more defined over time because they're pretty vague, really, when you look at the amendment. 
The Supreme Court ruled in 1951 that a bail was considered excessive if it were, quote, a figure higher than is reasonably calculated to ensure the defendant's appearance at trial. Okay. Still don't know what that means exactly, but but I don't care. I'm sure that some of you law-talking guys out there understand what, what they mean by that. Now, with regard to excessive fines, the Supreme Court ruled in 1909 that excessive was to be defined as, quote, so grossly excessive as to amount to a deprivation of property without due process of law. Basically, if the fine is going to financially destroy you, there must be a legal process that allows for your destruction. So, say you have assets worth a half a million dollars, right? Your house, your cars, your cash, your all the goods you own, your retirement, all of that stuff, and you're fined $10 million for whatever. Unless a pre-established legal process was followed that allowed for this sort of fine, it would be excessive. As for cruel and unusual punishment, well, this has been debated and ruled on in a number of ways, but in 1972, the Supreme Court stated that there were four ways to determine if a punishment is cruel and unusual. Number one, the punishment must not be degrading to human dignity and it can't involve torture. Number two, a severe punishment meted out arbitrarily. Number three, a severe punishment that society has generally agreed should not be used. And number four, a severe punishment that is simply unnecessary based on the crime and the circumstances. Now, along with this, the Supreme Court has actually ruled some punishments as being forbidden and some that cannot be used for certain crimes. So, the punishments that have just been forbidden are drawing and quartering, public dissection, oh, that sounds horrible, burning alive or being burned at the stake, disembowelment, crucifixion, breaking on the wheel, the rack, thumbscrews, potentially solitary confinement, uh, the death penalty if the convicted is under 18 years of age at the time of the commission of the crime, and the death penalty if someone is mentally handicapped. Now, some punishments that may be forbidden, depending on the situation, hard or painful labor, shackling for the duration of the incarceration, a revoking of citizenship, as apparently was ruled in 1962, a drug addiction is an illness. It's not, no matter what you're told, but that's what they ruled. So a 90-day jail sentence that was handed down by California was overturned as cruel and unusual because it would have been torturous, apparently, for the druggie. Another punishment that may be forbidden is an incarceration duration disproportionate to the offense. I wonder if they've ever heard of the January 6th gulag that's been created. And another one, apparently in 1977, the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty was cruel and unusual in the case of rape, and then in 2008 they doubled down and said it's cruel and unusual in the case of child rape, as a life, you know, hadn't been taken. I'd guess I'd argue that a life might have been taken, and I think swift justice should be taken for those that decide rape is their thing. Just saying. So I guess to wrap up this amendment, excessive and cruel and unusual, eh, they're kind of loosely defined, but they're defined well enough to maintain the human dignity of most people most of the time. Now, personally, I'd like to see our justice system move maybe a little more quickly and more decisively. I'd like to see the death penalty assigned and carried out more swiftly and for a wider array of crimes. As the country softens and as the left continues their fight to put the rights of the criminal above the victim, I doubt that I'll ever get my wish. Moving on, let's take a look at the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth and the Tenth are actually very similar, and basically they're wrapping up what is now known as our Bill of Rights. So the Ninth reads, quote, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So Barack Obama, remember him back in the good old days, back in 2001, said that the Constitution is a, quote, charter of negative liberties. It says what the states can't do to you, says what the federal government can't do to you, but doesn't say what the federal government or state government must do on your behalf. And yes, 
He's correct. The Constitution as a whole, including the Bill of Rights and all other amendments, is not an owner's manual with troubleshooting guides and tech contact info and fully illustrated diagrams and flowcharts. The Constitution is a guide, a very general, broad guide, which has been narrowed and focused slightly through the use of the amendment process. What Obama wanted, what the socialist left wants, is to have a document that mandates things like uh, wages and insurance and the right to a house or a car or a phone. More recently, the right to high-speed internet, food, little walking around cash, and the extensive list goes on. They want to have a socialist state that guarantees everyone everything, as long as the government is the provider of those everythings, and as worshipped without reservation as such. But the Constitution is there to set up guardrails against the government. You can go this far and no farther. This allows the citizen to have freedom within very broad boundaries, and it almost seems like we've done okay with that. So the Ninth Amendment is basically a caveat, a warning to our federal government that says, this ain't it, this is a basic list, so back off the citizen. Certain rights, because of past issues, were highlighted in order to protect our freedom on a very macro level. Beyond that, the right of the citizen to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness has massive implications and a nearly infinite range of possibilities. This amendment just tells the feds that uh, just because they don't see it in here doesn't mean you can restrict or remove other rights. So, what about abortion, then? That's not spoken about in the Constitution or the amendments. So how can that fundamental right <clears throat> be taken away from women? And trans, well, wait, which one is the woman playing pretend that she's a, she's a he or what? Uh, trans men? Let's just go with trans men. Well, the problem with an abortion is that uh, the what is it question, right? That's the problem. If we can agree that it's not going to come out as an Xbox or a Toyota Camry or a fly fishing rod or something like that, that it's actually a human baby, then when do the guarantees of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness apply to the child? I would argue at conception. Others would gladly argue with me on that. But for those that are sane and prefer real science over emotional progressivism and pseudoscientific postmodern biology, we know that's a human in there. And we know that a human is being murdered. Murdering someone else is not a right that anyone has. That's not constitutional. In fact, you can go the other way and say that humans, no matter their size, level of development, environment or degree of dependence, remember the SLED acronym, actually have the right to not be murdered by a parent or anyone else. So just because it's not in there doesn't mean that we, the people, don't have rights. And we might as well wrap up the Bill of Rights today, all right? Moving to the Tenth Amendment, quote, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right, which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. Oh, thank you so very much. The grand return as the last words of the Bill of Rights in Congress assembled. Oh, how I've missed you. Anyway, the point of the United States was to be a collection of experiments. At this time, 50 of them. Again, the Constitution is a document that gives fairly broad guidelines, giving a greater share of power to the central and federal government than the relatively weak Articles of Confederation, while not being overbearing, autocratic, or tyrannical. So there were and are certain rights that the founders and the first Congress, yes indeed, assembled, felt needed to be universal to all people, as stated in the Ninth Amendment. And I'm confident that they put the Ninth before the Tenth because the rights not mentioned but inherent to the citizen are more important than a state's rights. The people had certain inalienable rights given to them by God, whether you believe in him or not. But beyond the basic guideline, beyond the inalienable rights, the states have the right to try things. Now, as I just argued, abortion to me is unconstitutional. But because the basic definition of what is it has not been clearly defined as of yet, we're talking legally defined as of right now, each state has the right to determine what they want to do up to the point of birth. Now, the same goes for gay marriage, sexual mutilation of children, 
state taxes, universal basic income, universal state provided insurance, vehicle inspections, and the list is virtually limitless. The concept, of course, is the same basic idea as capitalism. The best ideas will be embraced by the vast majority of the people. Those ideas that are the most popular will be adopted by other states, eventually encompassing the entire United States with the best of the best ideas. The ideas that are terrible or harmful will be shunned. Politicians will lose their jobs and others will come in and repeal those bad ideas. The knowledge of the bad ideas will also make the rounds through the country and will be filed away as what not to do, especially if I want to keep my job. For states that implement bad ideas and refuse to listen to the will of the people, well, they'll lose population. I mean, look right now. Most of the top states losing population are heavily Democrat states. They've adopted every piece of woke ideology that they can get their hands on, shoved them down the throats of their citizens, and people have had enough. The states that insist on bad ideas will fail. At least, that's the theory. I have to imagine that the founders were under the assumption that given enough time, the entire country would converge at unity with regard to how things should be done. At the same time, West Virginia is not the same as New York, which is not the same as Oklahoma, which is not the same as Wisconsin, which is not the same as Texas, which is not the same as Alabama, which is not the same as California, and who even knows what's going up on in Alaska there? It's way too cold to go snooping up around there. So as the states converge on the best of the best ideas, each state has the right to tailor these ideas and tailor their policies and laws in general to their specific states and situations. Now, that's how it's supposed to work. To some degree, we do actually see that working. From a conservative point of view, the legislatures of the conservative states right now are generally looking at their neighbor's paper to see what answer they got for number five, so to speak. A lot of the same laws are being voted on in a lot of states because some states are leading as a whole and some states are leading in certain areas. What we also see is a number of states that will be defiant until the very end. They will lose their citizens in general, and specifically the high wage earners and the businesses, which is the loss of their tax base, which will force them into economic crisis. But the concept of too big to fail has become the popular phrase since, what was it, the banking crash of 2008, I think? And there's no doubt that one political party will prop up their backing states and at this point, most likely both political parties will vote to prop up a state when needed. And it will be needed in the not-too-distant future. We will have states that will be on the edge of default, of bankruptcy. They're going to need intervention from the Fed to survive. Regardless, the idea that each state should be able to try and to succeed and fail based on their own merits was a radical concept. That kind of freedom given to the states and, frankly, to the citizens was just unheard of. And for those of us alive today, which is probably most of you listening right now, we're getting to see this battle of state versus fed, state versus state, and state versus citizen play out in real time. It's terrifying in some regards, but it's fascinating to watch. And that, my friends, is part eight of our look at the amendments to the Constitution on episode 26 of The American Genesis. And that wraps up our look at the Bill of Rights. These 10, all adopted in 1791, believe it or not, make up over one-third of the total amendments to the Constitution. There have only been 27 amendments in over 230 years. That's literally an amazing statistic, if you think about it, and it speaks volumes as to the wisdom and, I believe, the divine inspiration of our founders. In the next episode, we shall soldier on. I'll be honest, most of the Bill of Rights I knew. I, I probably could have gotten close, at least in concept, to naming them all, the, the, the first 10, right? After this, there are some I know for sure, but most of these, it's likely going to be as much of a surprise to me as it is to you. Kind of a political, historical, nerd Christmas kind of thing, right? And this is where we'll leave it for now. So, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.
Well, it's been a month. Four weeks, 28 days, so I guess not quite a month, not a real month. Kind of like that faker month, February, but close enough to a month. And I'm holding my own here, so uh, might as well get right to it. This goal update will be just a little bit longer as I have more to say this time. You'll see as we go. All right, goal update. Remember, this is as of Tuesday. So regarding my weight loss, <clears throat> I've been keeping at it, generally below my net calorie goal for the day. I'll be honest, a few cravings have popped up like a, a large, really buttery, really salty bowl of popcorn. I'd really like to have one of those. And, and look, I could. I, I legitimately could have it and it would be fine. It would throw the weight off for a day or two and then settle back down where it's supposed to be. But so far, I've been strong like bull. <clears throat> that said, I did make a nice load of uh, spaghetti with my mom's Italian meatballs. And I might have eaten a solid heap of that on Sunday afternoon for a late lunch. And also again on Monday evening for dinner. I stayed within my calories. I actually did. But a couple meals like that eh, kind of hangs with you for a little while, if you know what I mean. So over the last week... I lost 1.4 pounds per my trusty, way too technologically sophisticated scale with smartphone app and Bluetooth connectivity. With a weekly goal of 1.5 pounds per week, that's just shy of the goal. But overall, I'm down 9.6 pounds in four weeks, which is an average of 2.4 pounds per week, which I'm more than happy with. That's 3.6 pounds ahead of my goal after four weeks, and it puts me at a stocky, 204.8 pounds overall. That's well on my way to meeting my goal of being in the 170 to 175 range by the end of July. Just as a reminder, I have a range because I'm really not sure what that's going to look like until I get down closer to those numbers. See, when I graduated high school, I was about 145 pounds, but I had no muscles. About eight years ago, I got down to 166 point something, and the ladies at church were very concerned that I was very sick or, or something. And so we'll just have to see and adjust and lock in a goal as I get closer. Oh, one other thing. I can tell in my belt. That's always a fun thing, right? I was on the second hole from the end on this particular belt, and it was right. It wasn't too tight, not loose by any, any means there. Now, the third hole is nearly the natural fit. So I'd say I've lost probably a half to three quarters of an inch on my waist so far, which is good. As this period of fattening has gone more to my gut than any time in the past, so that needs to go away. So this goal, to wrap it up, stays a solid green. Anyway, moving on to reading. Okay, still doing this mostly at night as I lay in bed. So some nights are a couple pages at best, and then, you know, but I have tried to take a few days and read at times other than bedtime, and by doing so, I was able to read 85 pages over the last week, which beats the approximately 70 pages per week I need to stay on target. So as of right now, I've read 625 pages this year, and at a goal of 300 pages per month, I'm well ahead of the goal, even if I just turned into a complete slacker in February. That's not my plan, however. Now, as I said a few weeks ago, as I finish a book, I'll try to give you a brief review and a yay or a nay on the book. So I finished Bill O'Reilly's Killing the Killers the other day. This is about a segment of the War on Terror. As with all of his killing books, it was really well written. It just, it really captures your attention. A little caveat to that, I have not, nor am I ever going to read Killing Jesus, have my reasons, one of which is that my dad and I saw the little mini documentary made of the book, and although I don't remember what they were anymore, I remember there were a handful of parts that we just kind of looked at each other and, and said, that doesn't seem right. So I just think we can get better information regarding this topic along these lines from the Bible and a large number of other authors. Anyway, I'll be honest, I remember some of the accounts in this book, Killing the Killers, when they happened, but boy, I tell you, I did not know a lot of the background or inside information, just had never heard it before. Now, I don't know how they get all this, but I definitely recommend this book, as well as pretty much every other book in the Killing series, with the caveat. This goal also stays a solid green. All right, moving on to Bible in a Year by the end of September. 
I was somewhat behind my goal. Remember, this is not the entire Bible in a year. This is a chunk of it. I was somewhat behind my goal. It was a light green in the last update. Since then, I have made a concerted effort to not only read over the weekend, which was what was getting me, but also read a little bit extra every day last week, at least when I could. Can't always, but when I could. You know, the Bible really is an interesting book. Just saying. As a result, I moved from about 90.5% of my goal last week, which is behind the target, to 110.8% of my goal this week. So, good progress. I'm now ahead of schedule, which is great. I mean, the sooner I get this done, that sounds horrible saying it that way, but the sooner I get this done, the sooner I can start on phase two of my reading plan for the year. So this one moves from a light green last week to a solid green. And finally, devotions. Now, recall, this is the one that I hit in the morning before I get into the shower, and this goal is to read the way the devotional is set up, five out of seven days. Now, truth be told, I actually do have a selection of Bible passages for the weekend and generally a story that goes with it. I'm not counting those. As I'm attending church, I'm teaching a class, which I need to prepare for, and I'm doing my own Bible reading, so I think I'm okay here, right? Anyway, I was a solid green last week, just ahead of schedule, at 103.9% of goal, and apparently I only read four mornings last week. Now, I seriously had no idea. I know I missed this morning, uh, which today is Tuesday, because I was running behind. I know I missed Sunday morning because I was up for about 23 hours the day before, having to drop the kid off at school at 5.45 in the morning picking her up at about three in the morning. (laughs) Darn you, show choir. So I was pretty much just whooped and running behind. Uh, I almost forgot to shave before church. I was just wiped out. Anyway, no idea where I missed the other one, but the end result is that I moved back to just behind my schedule at 99.5%. I mean, if you round like I rounded my college GPA when putting it on my resume, Technically, that's 100%. But since I'm a tick behind, well, we'll move the solid green back to the light green. And so that's it. Those are the goals. Now, one last thing. I also had a goal of figuring out how I wanted to structure my prayers. And yes, I get that you're probably like, structure your prayers. Just pray, Dan. Well, okay. I don't have time to pray for a couple hours every day. That's just the reality. All right. And there are literally a couple hours of things to pray for if you cover all the topics. Think about it. So being an engineer, any way that I can structure something, it's way better for me. I'm not really spontaneous at all, okay? So I wanted to get things kind of figured out and then get to it. Again, this would be what I would call the formal prayer for the day. So I've looked through a few prayer list apps, and I actually settled back on one that I found a couple years ago called PrayerMate. Now I have an Android because I hate Apple with all of the passion of a trillion white-hot burning suns, but I think this app is made for both platforms, you know, Android and the hated, despised one. This app has a moderate amount of functionality, but what I like about it is the list function. You can organize your prayers, the requests, your thoughts into as many categories and lists as you'd like. You know, think like family or job or your government and leaders, your church, things like that. Some things I'll pray for every time. Others I'll be shooting for maybe once a week. Now, is this the right way to do it? Yes. Yes, it is. I don't know, but to be honest, I don't know if it is or not, but it is a way. Now, I think I'm also going to generally try to stick with the ACTS, that's A-C-T-S, method of praying. A stands for acknowledge. This is where you praise God for who he is, for his attributes, and just spend a little time worshiping the creator for who he is. C is confession. This is kind of the squidgy part, right? We all know God already knows, but we come to him anyway and humble ourselves and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, generally, yet again. T is thanksgiving. Whereas with acknowledge, we're just worshiping God for who he is, Thanksgiving is the time to praise and thank God for who he is and what he has or or even hasn't done directly in your sphere, right? Personally. This one is a hard one because as an all-loving, all-powerful God, when the answer to the prayer request is no, we also need to thank him for that. Thanksgiving isn't a one-way street. Positive equals thanks. Negative outcomes is folded arms and back turned toward God, right? No, we, we need to thank the one that knows the entire plan, no matter what the outcome. 
And then S is supplication. This is generally where a lot of us start and finish our prayers and also fill in in the middle. These are the requests, right? Personal, maybe their request from the church prayer list, uh, the future of our kids, for those Powerball numbers to hit, you know, those sorts of things. But this should really come at the end. These are legitimate, definitely. But God knows our needs and requests before we ask. It's more important for us to praise God, confess our sins, and then thank him. And then, then we can get to the wish list. So that's the format I want to try to use. Now that said, all I have left is to populate the various lists as I already have them created. At least I think, at least I'm close. And then I can start. And hopefully that'll be no later than March 1st. Sooner is fine too. But remember, engineer, structure, schedule. So anyway, I'd say so far, so good with the goals I've been working on. Definitely not perfect, but progressing generally in the right direction. Okay, and so I ask again, how are you doing? Are you sticking with it? Am I helping to motivate you at all? Or am I just a performing monkey that you tune into each week to see if I've stuck with it or totally blown it, which, let's be honest, is even more fun. Either way is fine by me. Um, I'd hope maybe more the former than the latter, but whatever floats your boat. If you have a boat, hopefully it floats. Anyway, as always, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, just let me know. And uh, with that, peace, I'm out of here. That was terrible. Bye.